When Callaway introduced the Apex Irons, they created the Player's Distance Iron category. Now they've redefined it with the Apex 21, the first forged irons designed with artificial intelligence. Apex's classic forged craftsmanship is paired with futuristic AI for a combination of tour feel, incredible distance, and shot-making control. In 21, there's an Apex for everyone. With the Apex, the Apex Pro, and the new forgiving Apex DCB. Nothing delivers everything like Apex. Find your Apex at CallawayGolf.ca. Just when we think we have a handle on the pandemic, we get thrown another curveball. COVID-19 cases are on the decline, vaccinations are up, and provinces are starting to reopen. But a new variant has taken hold here, potentially leaving us vulnerable to a new spike in infections. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post health reporter Sharon Kirkey joins me to talk about where the variant has taken hold in Canada, how serious it is, and how it factors into whether Canadians are feeling comfortable about reopening. Don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your favorite shows. Heck, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Sharon, you know, it seems a a lot of times we're only talking to you about COVID-19 when when things are bad. (laughs) And right now, there's been a lot of talk about the Delta variant of COVID-19 and how it could be bad news. What is the Delta variant and where did it first arise? The Delta variant was formerly known as the variant from India, you know, and that its technical name is B1617. And it was first identified in India in December, though it's thought to have actually emerged sometime in, in October of 2020. And it's called Delta now because a few weeks ago, the World Health Organization decided to name the variants of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, after the Greek alphabet, right, to sort of partly make them less confusing, but also to reduce the risk of creating stigmas about specific countries like the UK strain and the South African strain and the Brazilian strain. Mm -hmm. What's to say that we can never see a Canadian strain, right? How does it differ from the other variants we've seen and how is it similar to the other variants that we've seen? The research is suggesting it's the most transmissible variant yet. There was a White House official who referred to it as COVID on steroids. You know, I, I don't know if that's right, but it, it does have several mutations in the spike protein that the virus uses to enter our cells. And those mutations make it easier for the virus to latch onto and, and slip inside our cells. Mm-hmm. And with Delta, you know, Delta is thought to be, the estimates kind of change, but it's thought to be around 40 to 60% more transmissible than the UK strain, which is now called the alpha strain, which it was 40 to 60% more transmissible than the early strains from Wuhan, right? So the old COVID. So what you're really doing is upping the game here, you know, more transmissible than the one before that was more transmissible than the earlier ones. And I guess the worry too is also some evidence that it's better at evading immunity. So I mean, immunity achieved either by vaccination or a prior COVID infection. And also some early suggestions that it increases the risk of getting sick enough that you're going to need to be admitted to hospital. Mm -hmm. I guess the last piece of it too is, and this has just sort of come out a little most recently, that the symptoms seem a little different with this one. I mean, across 
all the variants, the symptoms tend to be pretty much the same fever, cough, headaches, shortness of breath, maybe loss of smell or taste. But this one seems to be a little different. For example, there seems to be more headaches with this one. So there's something about this that's different than the other variants that we've had circulating. When did it first arrive in Canada? And so far, which province has been hit hardest by it? Well, we started to see it in Canada around late April. And that was when uh, I was Quebec and Ontario, Alberta and BC, they all started reporting cases. And now it's like essentially across Canada, though the numbers still aren't huge. They're not widespread. Certainly the UK, the alpha variant still dominates, but Delta is closing in quickly. One of the largest clusters of Delta right now is in Alberta, where it's infected, I think it's 22 people at the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary, mm-hmm. including two deaths. And the worrisome part was that some of those people you know, had been doubly vaccinated. Delta's also been behind some spikes in cases in Manitoba and in the Peel region in Toronto and northern Ontario. And the last time I checked for Ontario as a province, Delta now accounts for 30% of new confirmed infections. And, you know, maybe a month ago, it was hovering around 4 or 5%. So it just shows you how rapidly it's growing. Now, you mentioned with the Calgary outbreak at the foothills that there were some people who had been fully vaccinated. You know, we've seen vaccination numbers grow quickly in Canada with a high uptake on first doses. And we're in the midst of provinces booking second doses for people. Is there concerns that even with that uptake that Delta will kind of gain a foothold? Or do we get a sense that those cases with the double vaccinations may be outliers? Yeah, we knew that there were going to be those breakthrough cases, right? Because we have to remember, although the vaccinations of vaccines are very, very good at preventing symptomatic infection or making you very severely ill with COVID. They're not 100% perfect, right? So so we knew that there were going to be breakthrough infections. Mm-hmm. And will vaccination stop Delta in its tracks? You know, that's the hope, right? That we can contain it. And because it's more contagious, that makes ramping up vaccinations really all that more critical, right? Which is why you're also now seeing provinces pushing out those second doses faster. Initially, there was a lot of worry, right? There were these early reports that, uh uh-oh, a single dose of either AstraZeneca or Pfizer provided only 33% protection against Delta overall. But, you know, just this week, a study came out from Public Health England, and it found that a single dose of Pfizer, in fact, you know, offered like 94% protection against hospitalization with Delta. And one dose of AstraZeneca, it was like 71% protection. And then after two doses, you know, the numbers rose to, I think it was 96% for Pfizer and 92 for AZ. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a first estimate on how well the shots protect people from like really severe disease, which is really what matters. When we've seen the Delta variant in other countries, what has been the experience there? And do we get any sense whether that could indicate if Canada could see a fourth wave driven by these variants? Well, I mean, you know, India has just come out of a brutal, brutal catastrophic wave that was driven by Delta. And the UK is kind of giving us a cautionary tale, right? You know, they had to just push back the British reopening that was considered like a done deal two weeks ago. They've just had to push that wider reopening back by a month because of Delta. And in the UK, Delta now makes up 
the other day it was like 91% of new cases in the UK. So could we see a fourth wave? Sure, it's possible. Mm-hmm. We've got summer and warm weather on our side. We've got accelerated second doses. But the people I talked to, the epidemiologists, they say, you know, we could see something at the end of summer. We could see something early fall when we start moving back inside again. But, you know, if we can get 75, 80% of the population vaccinated by, say, Labor Day, any surge in numbers or cases is likely to be manageable. I mean, that's the hope anyway. It's the unvaccinated who would be at greatest risk of severe disease. As you mentioned, we're getting into summer. We're getting warmer weather. People want to go outside. Cases are at a fairly low point in many provinces. So we're starting to see talk of reopening or provinces moving through stages of reopening. There's been talk of anxiety or uneasiness among some people. Is it concern over the vaccination rates that we're just not kind of hitting the right thresholds and these variants that's driving that anxiety? It's interesting because our fear of COVID seems to be really at its lowest level since the pandemic began. And after 15 months of this mess, I mean, how many times have we spoken, Dave? <laughs> you know, some reopening nervousness is entirely normal, right? Yeah. When you move people from, okay, high alert, danger, to, okay, we're good to start moving back to normal now, you know, it's going to maybe take some time for people to get perfectly comfortable again. For sure, people are worried about the variants. And wh- why wouldn't we be? We hear the cautions from the health leaders I mean, themselves worried about Delta. You know, at any time there is this new mutant strain, you know, I think it rattles people. And there's been this huge frustration too, you know, here in Ontario, frustration over a lack of spots for second shots and hassles with online booking systems. I mean, they keep expanding the age eligibility, but with limited slots. And, and there was a story the other day about an Ottawa woman who was finally able to book her second dose, but in like Simcoe, which is five hours away. So, I mean, that definitely adds to the anxiety. Could there be other factors at play here? Like the idea that, that we've been hit with messages about COVID from leaders, from health officials, and even from you and I and others like us in the media that just have made people just feel a general sense of unease? I think that's true. And I think also there's still a lot of uncertainty, right? And uncertainty is a really big driver of anxiety. There's still uncertainty about the vaccines. You know, how long will immunity from the shots last? Will we need boosters? And, you know, will this come back? And some of the uncertainty is also related to going back to work. Will we actually go back to the office or the newsroom? Will it feel safe? Will I feel comfortable around somebody not wearing a mask anymore? Will I feel comfortable riding the subway or the bus? And, you know, how safe is my kid's class going to be? So all these kind of unknowns and uncertainties really add to that sense of uneasiness. And when you look at the polls, they certainly suggest we're going to change some of the things that we do. You know, we're going to wash our hands more than before COVID. You know, we're going to avoid maybe large crowds more. We're going to avoid cruise ships. We're going to avoid all-you-can-eat buffets. But there's also this sizable chunk of people, like maybe a third of people, who are going to throw caution to the wind and just party like there's absolutely no tomorrow. That's what Tom Munger, a psychiatrist at St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto, told me. He said, humans are highly resistant. We're very social animals. We've been kept apart, forced apart physically for more than a year. And it's not good for our bodies or our brains. And many people are just desperate to get back to some kind of normal life. 
it's not a majority, obviously, but is that kind of like the main group? People who want to get life back to normal and are going to throw caution to the wind? Or is there kind of a middle ground between the people who are like really uncertain or really anxious and then the people who want to get back out there and party like it's the old days? Yeah, Tom said there's this one third that's just going to say, you know, thank God it's over and everything's back to normal. There's going to be a slightly smaller proportion who are going to remain quite anxious. Many of them are people who were anxious going into the pandemic, right? It's going to take longer for them to perhaps come out of this and feel comfortable. And certainly they are seeing higher incidences of anxiety, like bona fide anxiety, genuine clinical anxiety and depression. And those people are going to need help. But then that's right. Then there's the middle, right? The cautious. We're going to be careful. You use this phrase about dipping our toe in the water, right? We're going to start in the shallow end. And then if we feel comfortable, we'll get into the pool. And then, you know, we'll come out again. And then we'll go into the deep end. And then, you know, once we get more comfortable, you know, gradually we'll be swimming again and treading water. I think it's, again, that we've experienced this real existential threat to our lives, right? And it's not the same as living through a world war, but it has been a big deal. It's been a huge deal. And most people have experienced sadness and anxiety and frustration and worry. And this is the second worst respiratory pandemic of the last hundred years. So it's it's perfectly normal to feel that way. But again, you know, nothing in life is risk-free, right? Yeah. It's a matter of what's your personal risk tolerance. Do you get a sense that this could create just a general uneasiness among some people just about the risk that's inherent in the things we did normally before the pandemic? That COVID-19 was a reminder of the risk of living in an open society, that there is a possibility that if you're on a crowded bus or a crowded train, that you could catch what someone else has or that certain workplaces are, are more dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Maybe we do stop things like hugging or kissing or shaking hands the way we once used to. I mean, again, that's what the poll suggests will happen. People are thinking again about how close do we want to get to other people, especially people we may not know particularly well. But, you know, in this reluctance, you know, I'm going to poll suggests people are going to avoid large crowds more. But then you see they opened up Bell Center for the Game 6 in the Habs and Leafs series and like 2,500 hugely happy, jubilant, giddy fans rushed to the seats. And we see pictures of people on beaches and, and you know, desperate to get together again. So what we say we'll do and what we actually end up doing are, are often two different things. And again, we're mostly social creatures, right? And while it may take some time to adjust to gathering indoors again without masks, for example, it will eventually get there. Stephen Taylor, a clinical psychologist at UBC who studies pandemics, he said, look, there was very little psychological residue after the 1918 Spanish flu. Again, there was all this worry about how fragile people are and what the effect would be. And that was like a devastating, devastating pandemic. But he said masks were quickly abandoned and people genuinely got back to normal quite easily. Here too, I think people will be surprised at how rapidly we do return to normal. Sharon, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your time. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks so much. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sharon Kirky. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.